get into today's message, uh, I want to start off with a quick announcement. Um, from now on, you can find written versions of my sermons uh, in a few different places. If you want, you can go to the link um, in the description of this video and you'll be able to go to the Word document of this sermon if you just want to read it. Um, or if you would like to have a actual physical copy, I've started selling them on Amazon. They're very cheap, they're about three and a bit euro. Well, the one I've sold so far, this one's the first one, it's about three and a bit euro. If you want that, you can have it. You can also get it in an ebook form. The ebook is cheaper, but if you're going for the ebook, you might as well just go for the, the Google Doc and you'll get it for free. Uh, I don't mind which one you do, I just thought it would be a cool thing to do. I'm not asking you, you have, saying you have to do it or whatever. You don't really get much out of it except the, the sermon in written form. Uh, but it's just, if, if it's something you're interested in, because that would be a cool thing to do, if it's something you're interested in, well then, there you go. And especially if you're someone who's hard of hearing or something like that, the free one, the description is going to be a, a great help to you. Anyway, let's get into it. Today we are continuing our study of the book of Luke. We are still in the fourth chapter. We will be covering uh, verses 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36. And 37. In this passage, we will see Jesus exercise his power over a demon possessed man, leaving an entire synagogue speechless. Today, we will explore the power both of Christ and of demons. So, let's begin. Luke 4 31 to 37. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commanded the unclean spirit, spirits, and they came out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Verse 31. In this verse, we see Jesus go to Galilee to preach the gospel. We also see this event take place in Mark 1, 21 to 28. That's interesting that Luke says that Jesus went down to Capernaum. Or Capernaum or Capernaum or Capricorn, however it's said. Capernaum is, I believe, about 2,000 feet below Nazareth which is where Jesus just was. And by saying this, Luke is showing that he understands the layout of the area. Now, there are some who claim that the gospel authors were unfamiliar with the places they spoke about. However, that's not the case. When you actually look into the routes Jesus is said to have taken to get from place to place, all of them show a proper understanding of the area. And this is just one example. Now, as I said last time, it was common for synagogues to allow wandering rabbis, as Jesus was, to preach the Sabbath message. The synagogue he is preaching at now is probably unaware of the fuss he kicked up at the synagogue he preached at before. In fact, they likely had no idea who he was. 
Bush, he knew who they were. Jesus hadn't just wandered into the synagogue for no reason. There was someone there Jesus wanted to meet. But he doesn't meet him for another two verses. So we'll have a look at that man when we get to verse 33. Verse 32. The people at this synagogue found Jesus' message shocking. Uh, we're not sure what he preached. Perhaps he once again claimed to be the Messiah and these people understood better than the last lot. Perhaps he called them all sinners. Maybe he told them Gentiles would be welcome into the kingdom of God as well as Jews. We don't know. The verse doesn't tell us, nor does Mark 1, 21-28, which, as I said before, describes this event too. Whatever Christ said, it's clear that it had a fair bit of an impact on the listeners. The verse says that Christ's words had authority. Now this makes sense as Christ is God, making everything he says the word of God. I would love to have heard more of Christ's teachings. John 21, 25 makes it clear that Christ did so much in his life that it would have been nearly impossible to record it all. And also, we know that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. This means that anything which wasn't included was left out because it was not necessary. Still, I hope that we will get to hear more teaching from Christ in heaven. Anyway, Jesus' preaching is clearly authoritative. The authority in his words is palpable. Everyone in the room is in agreement that this man preaches like no one else. There is something about this rabbi that is just different. That is because every word they hear is the word of God. Compare that to those people in the modern day who claim to be prophets of God or who claim to preach messages that God will put on my heart. Now, do any of them sound in any way authoritative? The answer is... No, no, these people never sound even remotely close to being in any way authoritative. Now, it's certainly unreasonable to assume that these people, or indeed any person, would ever sound as authoritative as God himself. But when these people claim to be prophets, or claim to be preaching something which God directly told them, the fact that they talk with so little authority is telling. Surely, if some prophet was preaching a message which God had supposedly placed on their hearts, then they would sound a little bit more authoritative than they do. Of course, these people aren't prophets because there are no more prophets. 1 Corinthians 13.8 Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Prophecies have passed away. There are no more prophets. Those who in the modern day claim to be prophets are either deceivers or they themselves are deceived. Either way, we cannot listen to them. We can't listen to a deceiver because everything they say is uncertain and you would never know whether or not they were lying. Now, some might say it's better to be wrong than to be lying. That is certainly true in some respects. It's not a sin to be wrong. Well, it is a sin to lie. However, that doesn't mean we should listen to those who are genuinely mistaken. Those who preach falsely, preach falsely. Those who preach falsely in order to deceive are certainly guilty of something worse than those who are simply mistaken. But no amount of genuineness can turn falsehoods 
or contradiction into fact. No one can ever be so good-intentioned that the falsehoods they believe and teach suddenly become true. Thankfully, we have more than two options. While it's true that we can choose to listen to either the moronic or the malicious, we can also choose to listen to the marvellous word of God. We can choose to listen to those who preach the word of God truthfully and faithfully. And the people in this synagogue didn't have to make any choice. The rabbi didn't have to try and interpret scripture. Instead, there came to them a rabbi who spoke scripture. Jesus came to them and preached a message to them that was seemingly unbelievable, shocking, astounding. And while part of his reason for going to that synagogue was undoubtedly to teach, he also had another reason. As I said before, he went there to meet someone. So it's about time that we ourselves meet that person too. Verse 33. Here Jesus meets a man who has been possessed by a demon. People talk a lot about demon possession today. On the Christian side, there are those who say the one thing, and on the non-Christian side, there are those who say another thing. And I'll start with the non-Christian. Now, Hollywood has always seemingly been obsessed with demons. Of course, the first major one was The Exorcist. Uh, then that got two sequels, and there was a bunch of low-budget knockoff films with the word exorcist in the title in the hopes that people would get confused and buy their films instead of the proper one, which, by the way, is a tactic that a lot of people try. There are entire categories of films that are referred to as things like Not Disney and so on. Films like Up, Up and Away, the low-budget remake of Up. There are ones made for Kung Fu Panda, Ratatouille, and even do it for video games and all. And then, just recently, there was that film, The Pope's Exorcist. Now, Hollywood, the Hollywood view of a demon is... Some creature that just sort of causes a lot of havoc while making the studio a whole lot of money. Then you have the modern Christian view of demons and demon possession. This view of demon possession is the idea that demons come in and just make you sin. Ever feel unjustly angry? Well, you've got the demon of anger, I guess. Ever felt lustful? Oh, you got a lust demon. Ever felt like killing someone? That bloody murder demon's back at it again. I guess the demon of road rage was just sat back for a few thousand years with his feet kicked up. But in any case, people who hold to this view have a faulty understanding not only of demons, but of human nature. Now, for the first few years of my walk with Christ, I didn't attend church. Uh, thankfully, due to the sanctifying and loving work of God in my life, it changed my heart over time from one that was both lazy and fearful of doing something I didn't understand into one that cared more about him and his commandments than about my own selfish desires. I still sin, but you know, getting better. Now, in his loving sovereignty, he directed me to a wonderful church, one that fears God, preaches the true gospel, and has good biblical leadership. However, before I went to church, my substitute was to just watch sermons online. I would find YouTube channels run by small churches. I'd listen to Billy Graham stuff. I'd ask friends if their churches did live streams on platforms like Facebook. 
What I failed to understand is that while the preaching of the word of God is one of the most important parts of church, there's also the Lord's table and the fellowship with other believers. Now, at the time, my excuse was that, oh, going to church is now I choose to worship, uh, which, by the way, was an argument I picked up from someone that I knew to be a heretic. It's only because God was good to me that I ended up going to church rather than just listening to sermons online. Now, if this hadn't happened, and I just kept listening to stuff online, chances are I would have heard a lot more of the kinds of stuff I'm about to describe to you. Now, the church um, in this story was a local church. They put their sermons and stuff online, and they had a much larger following than I do. However, they're not even close to the levels of someone like Joel Osteen or Kenneth Copeland or something like that. They are a local church, and I've sort of kept up with the news of the church and the pastor who said what I'm about to talk about. Um, he's an older fella, so not long ago he retired. The guy they brought in to replace him actually seems to be doing a pretty decent job. So for these reasons, I just cannot justify naming and shaming the church. If it were some mega church or some other form of massive ministry which uh, was leading people into hell, then I would have no problem telling you the name of the place. However, as it's just a local church which used to have some iffy teachings, I can't give you the name. It, it just wouldn't be right. So, what's the story? Well, uh, I've told it before, I believe, so you may have heard it. Um, the pastor was talking about the Jezebel spirit. He said it was a, a spirit that came in and made people sexually immoral. Now, in order to drive this point, he told the story of a friend of his. This friend was also a preacher, and for the sake of simplicity, we'll just call him the friend. Now, one day, the friend apparently got hold of a computer, and then from there, he began to descend into lust. It was so bad that he eventually found himself messaging underage girls online. So, one day, he goes to meet up with one of these girls. Now, thankfully, by the grace of God, this underage girl was actually an undercover police officer. So, the friend was arrested, and the preacher, the one telling the story, goes to see him in prison. And the friend's explanation was something along the lines of, Oh, I never had any inclinations to do this before I got that computer, which seems like utter rubbish to me. One does not go from an honest man with integrity to a paedophile just because he got a computer. Also, if he had never had any thoughts like that before, then what compelled him to go to those parts of the internet that have such things? But that's by the by. Now, this story would be a great illustration of the sinfulness of man. This would be a great way of showing that all have sinned and all do sin. And even those you love and trust can end up doing some pretty big sins as a result of the fall. Or it could have been used to illustrate the need for proper church leadership. The need to not just let anybody stand behind the pulpit. As I said, I highly doubt this man had no sexual sinful urges before getting a computer. Let me once again ask, if he had never had any of those urges, then why did he use the computer to go to the places that would give him those urges? Instead of just 
using it to do things that are good and proper. Any of these messages would have been grand, but that's not what the preacher said. Those aren't the messages that the preacher took away from the story. Instead, the preacher ended the story with, and I'm not making this up, this is, this is honestly what he said, the explanation that that was a Jezebel spirit. That's disgusting, that's revolting, that's downright despicable. This man in a church behind a pulpit honestly tried to defend the spiritual and moral integrity of a man who, if God hadn't stopped him how he did when he did, would have ruined the life of some poor young girls, as well, probably, as that girl's family. Not to mention the embarrassment he actually did bring upon his own family and church, as well as the reproach he brought on God. This shows a fundamental lack of understanding of not only demons, but also man. Man is sinful, the Bible tells us as much. Man is not basically good, only acting out when he's unlucky enough to be oppressed by some demon. That man's sins were entirely his own. He cannot pass off the blame. I mentioned before how there's entire categories of films dedicated to being cheap imitations of much larger films. But I feel like this view of demons is basically just that. The view of demons, this view of demons is not the real thing. It's just a cheap imitation. And yeah, bringing that up for any of you who thought I was just going off on a tangent there. It's, it's all connected, don't worry. Now it is true that sometimes we do things as a result of giving into outside temptation where we wouldn't have sinned had it not been for the outside temptation. However, the choice to sin is still our own. The guilt is shared, but it is not lessened. Whoever or whatever tempts us shares in our guilt, but we are still guilty. I am sick and tired of so-called Christians who flat out refuse to take responsibility for their own actions. I am also disgusted that a preacher of all people would defend a man like this. I understand wanting to stick by your friends even when you know that they are in the wrong. I understand the loyalty that comes with true friendship. But I know that if one of the people I was friends with confessed to our friend group that he had tried to do something as heinous as meet up with an underage girl, well, there are a number of people in my friend group 
who would ensure that that guy would leave missing all of his teeth. And I myself would not be involved in such a thing, though I can't honestly say I would try and stop it from happening. Now, perhaps that is a fault of mine. Perhaps I should feel shame for saying something like that. I don't know, but I do know that there is nothing on God's green earth that could ever justify an attempt to write off attempted child molestation by blaming some supposed demon. We'll lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, in researching this message, I also heard that some people believe in the demon. And again, I'm not making this up. Post-nasal drip. In other words, the demon of uh, runny noses. Remember, demons are fallen angels. And this means that these people must believe that God created an angel of runny noses. <laughs> just, just let that sink in for a minute. This is, of course, quite silly. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the Hollywood view of uh, Christian subjects is an atheist one, right? We all know this. So, God is love, for example, becomes love is God. Forgiveness is something the hero seeks for himself but never gives to others, and revenge is the right of whoever holds the biggest gun. Love means accepting someone for who they are, as if they had no flaws, and people are seen as basically good except the villain, who is basically bad. The only good Christian is a non-Christian. The Christian character has three choices. Number one, they can stay silent about their faith. Number two, they can act on those parts of the faith that the world deems acceptable. Well, they can talk about love and you know, peace and kindness, but not, not sin, no. Or number three, they hold correct doctrinal views but are incre uh, incredibly hateful and are almost always the villain. I can think of no film, TV show or book apart from those made by Christians in which there is someone with a biblical worldview who, who is portrayed as a likeable character. Most of them not only portrayed as unlikable but also just villainous in general. Now, that's not to say that there are no such characters, likeable biblical Christians in uh, non-Christian works. I'm sure there's been some at some stage. Um, but generally speaking, if someone turns up as a Christian, it's either all about the love or it's all about hate and so on. So There you go. And, th and there's always black and white. There's no nuance to it. You, you, never, you never hear any, any of them shows uh, discussing... Um, you know, Calvinist versus Arminianism, or you know, which form of baptism is better, or whatever else. It's always just I love everybody and everybody's great, or it's just this hateful Westboro Baptist sort of stereotype. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure anyone who, like myself, watches a fair bit of secular media would agree with that. But despite all of that. This institution, this anti-Christian institution, seems to have a better, con like a better grasp on the concept of demons than most modern-day Christians do. In the Bible, those who are demon-possessed are, are, are often shown to be uh, chaotic, self-harming, and deranged. 
Hollywood doesn't always portray this exactly accurately, but compared to the mildly annoying spirit who causes Christians to commit any sin, ranging from unjust anger to attempted child molestation, or just give them a runny nose or whatever, the classic scenes from films like The Exorcist almost look like documentaries rather than fictional stories. When there is more Christian truth in Hollywood than there is in the pulpits, either something has gone very wrong or something has gone very right. Either churches have left the preaching of the word behind or Hollywood has embraced Christ. Now just one look at some of the acceptance speeches at the Film Award event shows um, that the latter is not the case. You know, There's that one infamous instance where some woman insulted Jesus and said that the trophy she had won was her God now. Of course, the sad reality is that between Christ and that trophy, she's only going to have to answer to one of them for the comments she made on both. Now, this means that preachers around the world must have put, especially in America, let's be honest, but also in places like Ireland, it's horrible, must have put aside the good and proper teaching in favour of a more appealing message. I signed into a, an unused YouTube account and just simply looked up the term sermon. Uh, and I used an unused account so that it wouldn't be biased based on my previous searches. I don't think I'd ever used the account for anything. First time ever searching anything on that, never watched a video, anything like that. I go in, go to the search bar, type sermon. Here are the names, just the names, here are the names of the preachers in order of appearance. Tony Evans, Vody Bacham, okay, pretty good start. Mike Todd, oh, never mind. <laughs> Max Lucado, I don't know who that is. Stephen Fersick, Jackie Hill Perry, Stephen Fersick, Joel Osteen, Bill Johnson, Stephen Fersick, Billy Graham. Of the first 10 videos, three were preached by people I'm quite unfamiliar with, those being Tony Evans, Max Lucado, and Jackie Hill Perry. I've heard of um, Perry and Evans before, but not much about them, and I've never heard of Lucado before. So I can't say much about them. However, Perry is a woman, so if she's preaching to a male audience, which I believe she does, um, then that is a big problem. From the little I know about her, I believe she does. But... Look, we'll give her the benefit of the doubt for now, okay? Now, of the remaining seven videos, two were preached by men who actually know the gospel, those being Billy Graham and Woody Bauckham. The remaining five sermons were preached by prosperity gospel charlatans. So, of the first ten results for the word sermon on YouTube, 50% are downright heretical, and 10% is in question as to whether or not the preacher is actually qualified to preach, depending on who she's preaching to. I had a quick look beyond the first 10. I didn't you know, take any of them down or whatever, but I, I saw one video from John MacArthur, pretty soon after, and then just a bunch more from Fertig Goldstein and Perry. So it seems the true gospel is getting out there. But false gospels are going further. One way in which modern Christians have abandoned the teaching of Christ is by refusing to take responsibility for their actions and claiming that everything they do is due to demon possession. If you sin, you did it because you were a sinner, not because you're basically good with the demon of swear words or the demon of slightly overindulging in alcohol took hold of you.
So anyway, back to the text here. Luke says that the demon was an unclean demon. Now, certain people apparently have taken this to mean that the demon was particularly bad. However, I don't think that this is the case. I think that Luke was just trying to impress upon the reader the sinfulness of demons in general, not just this one. I don't think there's any such thing as a clean demon. Now, the verse also tells us that the demon cried out, and the next verse tells us what he said. Verse 34. Ha! cries the demon. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, this is such a fantastic verse. Upon first reading the verse, it seems that there is only one indication as to the holiness of Christ. That being when the demon says Jesus is the Holy One of God. However... That is only the second time in the verse that the power of Christ is alluded to. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy the body, sorry, can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, what did the demon say? He said, ha, have you come to destroy us? Now, that word ha in Greek means leave us alone. Leave us alone if you come to destroy us. Now it's clear that there was a legion of demons in this man as described by other Bible authors. So the us there refers to the many demons that have taken over this man. Now a demon is a fallen angel. So who has the power to destroy a legion of angels? Well, I know some pretty powerful people, but I only know of one man who could do such a thing, and that man is Christ. Not only has Jesus got power over the demons, but they are clearly afraid of him. Clearly, Christ is not just some decent teacher like some claim. He's not merely a man. He is more than that. He is God. He is holy, meaning that he is set apart. He is the power to cast demons into hell, or in other words, destroy them. Here, the demons especially, uh, essentially proclaim the deity of Christ. They also make the claim that he is the Messiah by saying that he is the holy or set apart one of God. So, how does Jesus respond to this? Well, the next verse tells us, verse 35. Here we see that Jesus gives out to the demons. The verse said that he rebuked them. He then casts them out. But the quote is interesting. He doesn't just tell the demons to leave. First he says, be silent. Why is this? Well, Jesus was coming with a message. That message was that he was the Messiah. However, it's clear that he didn't want people to understand that just yet. There are a few times throughout the Gospels where Jesus says that it's not his time yet. He isn't lying to people about whether or not he's the Messiah, but he is being just vague enough so that people don't understand it yet. But they will when they look back on his teachings after his death. Jesus often spoke in parables, and the reason for this, I think, is that people would misunderstand what he said, no matter how he said it. If he had said everything as plainly as he could, people would still have misunderstood. But because they had heard him teaching plainly, they would have thought they did understand. 
Therefore, they would not have put in any work into actually trying to understand. But since Jesus spoke in parables, it is automatically harder to understand what he's saying. Because of this, people actually have to try to understand him. They have to put in some amount of effort. Because there is more incentive for people to try and understand him, there are less people who don't understand him. Although most people still don't understand him, now, the same logic applies for sections of scripture like this. Whenever Jesus says something that can be seen as cryptic, it's an invitation to look into what he's saying and actually try to understand it. Jesus is being purposefully vague here as he doesn't want the people around him to understand what's going on just yet. However, he is still saying enough so that when people look back on this, they will realize what Jesus was saying and doing. But why doesn't Jesus want people to understand him yet? Well, it's because of the expectations people had of him. Or rather, the expectations they had of the Messiah. At the time, it was generally believed that the Messiah would be a great military leader. If the people that he was preaching to found out about him being the Messiah, then they would try to start a bloody rebellion with him at the centre. Obviously, that's not what Jesus came to do, and so he was vague about his identity, but while still telling people who he was. It's important to note as well how Jesus cast the demon out. There's no great big ritual or rite or anything like that. There was no trinkets, no prayer. Just the sheer power of God alone. Jesus looked over and basically said, shut up and get lost, and that was enough. To expel a demon, you don't need all these rituals and rites, you just need the power of God. And this begs the question, when will we face demons in our lives? I've already told you about those people who think that everything that goes wrong, including their own sin, is entirely demonic. But how often are we really going to see demonic activity? Well... I'm not sure, but I doubt very much that most of us will ever see an actual possession. There are four books in the Bible that detail some, uh, someone who was possessed by a demon or demons. Those books are Matthew, Mark, Luke and Acts. No book in the Old Testament talks about someone being possessed by a demon. None of the epistles talk about it. Of the four gospel authors, only three talk about it. Those being Matthew, Mark and Luke, who was also the author of Acts. The Bible was written by 40 authors and only three mention demon possession. Why is this? Well, I believe it's because demonic activity peaked during the life of Christ. When Christ came to earth, the devil and his angels tried their best to disrupt his redemptive plan. Then, when Christ succeeded, demonic activity began to simmer down. There were still some demons causing some trouble, but eventually it all quietened down. The demons had one real opportunity to spoil God's plan, and that was during the life of Christ. Remember, demons are fallen angels. They were in heaven before Satan's rebellion. They knew the plan. They knew when to strike. And now that Jesus had died, rose again, and ascended, they knew that they had lost. They knew that they were defeated. For a long time, the Jews had waited for their Messiah, but they weren't the only ones waiting. Along with them were the demons and the devil. All were waiting together with bated breath. The Jews wanted to be saved by their Messiah. The devil wanted to stop the Messiah. Jesus upset both of them.
by granting salvation to both Jews and Gentiles, as well as not being a military leader, Christ failed to live up to the Jews' expectations of him. And by achieving what he set out to do, he had taken away the devil's last hope. Verse 36. Here we see the people's reaction to what happened. They are quite shocked. To try and understand how they must have felt in church, and a guest speaker you had never met before was preaching. Then during the sermon, someone in the middle of the church got up and started speaking, and from their speech, you could gather that that person was possessed by a clearly terrified demon. Then the guest preacher tells the demon to shut up and leave, and it does. I imagine that we would all be rather shocked after something like that, would we not? And so the people of the synagogue were in utter amazement. They are all quite aware of the fact that Jesus just commanded a demon to leave somebody. In this act, he was demonstrating a very real authority. Now, at this stage, people didn't know what the, uh, that, that authority was, what that authority was. Some thought that it was the authority of the devil, as Matthew twelve twenty two to 29 says. Um, now, this passage uh, in Matthew is not talking about the same thing that happened in our passage in Luke. This means that we cannot know whether or not the people who were there the day, um, that day, thought that Christ was casting out demons by using some demonic power. However, it is a possibility the sinful heart would believe anything except the truth. Perhaps the people in Luke four thirty one to thirty seven were thinking the same thing as those in Matthew twelve twenty two to twenty nine. I don't know. The text doesn't tell me, but the text does tell me that the people were confused. It's clear that due to the centuries of false teaching regarding the Messiah, the people were unable to recognize him when he actually turned up. From this, we see the damage of false teaching. When people preach a false Jesus, those who listen to them won't recognize the true one. Finally, verse 37. Here we see that the fame of Christ is beginning to spread. The more stuff he does, the more people will hear about him. However, there is a difference between people know about Jesus and people who know Jesus. In the beginning of the book of Acts, when all the believers are gathered together in the upper room, there are 120 of them. That's not a lot, especially by today's standards, but here's the thing. There are a lot of people who came, who claim to be Christian today, but how many of them are genuine? How many of them truly know Christ? Jesus' names and actions were known far and wide by the time of his death, but when it came down to it, only 120 people truly believed. There's a difference between professing faith and possessing faith. If we say that anyone who simply possesses faith in Christ is a Christian, then Christianity is the largest religion in the world. However, if we only count those who actually possess faith in Christ um, as Christians, then my guess is that Christianity is actually one of the smallest world religions. The question must be asked, which one are you? Are you a professor or a possessor? Is your faith real or fake? Do you love God or don't you? If you do love God... And do you understand him? Do you know who he is or what he's like? Do you know what his word actually teaches about things like demons and Satan and so on? Or is your theology influenced by Hollywood and other such unchristian things? God revealed himself in the pages of scripture, not on a film set. 
If you don't know Christ, then I encourage you to get to know him. I encourage you to realise your own sinfulness, your own need for a saviour. The truth is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ died to save sinners from the consequences of their own sins. If you do not know Christ, then get to know him and do it fast. When this passage spoke of Jesus removing the demon from the possessed man, it said that he healed him. If Christ can heal a man who is possessed by a demon, surely he can heal you of your sins. If he has power to do the one, then surely he must have power to do the other.